Thank you, Becky. Thank you, Papa Mike. Thank you, Maddie Cakes. Appreciate you guys. Well, good morning, Senators. We hope that you're doing well. If you're a guest with us, thank you so much for joining us remotely. We wish, of course, that we could be here together, but we'd like to double down and encourage you to come back next Sunday night for our postponed worship night that we're going to be having. The worship team has worked incredibly hard for that already, and I can't wait for us to be together in our parking lot worshiping and praising God. My name is Jed. It is an absolute privilege to serve as one of our pastors on staff. And this morning, before we continue in our series called Let's Talk, we have to give a shout out to Pastor Britt and Cindy. They are celebrating their 42nd wedding anniversary. Some of us in the building are clapping right now. And if you are on Facebook, join us. Why don't you type in the comment box, happy anniversary, Britt and Cindy. Tell them how much you love them and appreciate them. We are so, so thankful for the two of you, Britt and Cindy, and I hope that you guys are enjoying your weekend away together. All right, so we're going to kick things off here by going with a little true or false statement. Our series, Let's Talk, is about how it's really difficult in the current season that we're going to have productive conversation and dialogue in relationships because of the nature of the world that we live in. It's so polarized. It's so easy to get into discussions or arguments where we are putting people in positions of them being the enemy quickly, and then things fall apart. So here's a true or false statement for us to consider. It's an old thing that you may have heard. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. In the comment box, type out true or false. Do our words actually hurt? And do the words of others actually hurt us? I don't think it takes much for us to look at this statement. And if any of you out there are saying that this is true, I'm not quite sure what uh, type of human you are, because I don't think there is any person alive who has not been affected in some deep or quick even way by another person's words. And conversely, I'm sure every single one of us has contributed to another person being wounded because of something that came out of our mouths. As we'll talk about today, it's not just out of our mouths that those things are derived from When I was a kid, I remember my mom giving me these words. I was probably in kindergarten, and I'm not entirely sure why she was telling me this. And maybe that's when you learned it too. But it's funny because this little engine that could, where we're essentially telling ourselves, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can not be offended assumes we've already been offended. Words matter, they impact us, they should. Not inanimate objects that are just tossed. They come from a deep place. And biblically, this idea that words don't impact or they should not impact us or others isn't even true. Let's cycle through a handful of Proverbs that make this incredibly clear that we should distance ourselves from that type of thinking. Proverbs 18, a chapter that is replete, it's filled with these ideas, these wise sayings that have to do with words and conversations themselves. And in verse 14 and further, further along, it says, the human spirit will endure sickness, but a broken spirit, who can bear? And even though these Proverbs, again, are chunked off and oftentimes they're not necessarily connected, in Proverbs chapter 18, we see proverb after proverb that deals with words and language. And so the idea is that the human spirit 
can endure physical sickness, but there's something inside of us that can make it more difficult than just that. that that's real. I think all of us can relate to the idea of our spirits being crushed or broken because of something that someone said or did to us. Or what about this proverb? Fool shows their anger at once, but the prudent ignore an insult. And so in those situations where the stones or the sticks are tossed or hit our way, this proverb tells us that instinctively, naturally, we can all be foolish and we can show our anger, but the prudent, those that have a long-term perspective, that are more thoughtful and careful about just not, not just being in the moment they're in, there's an opportunity to ignore that. And so you might think, well, that's similar to the sticks and stones, but really, we're saying we understand that it can do great damage to us and we could respond in a certain way, but we're going to not respond negatively. Here's another way that we can respond proactively, perhaps. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And so we see on this end, we can contribute to it getting worse. And there are times where instead of just ignoring it, perhaps it's wise for us to say something with gentleness and meekness, and perhaps we might contribute to averting more combustion. And here's the final proverb that we have here. Rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Don't you love that contrast to sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? We don't have to play tough about the things that other people do to us, but instead we actually might be thinking about how we are the aggressors, how we are the ones that might contribute to other people, not just experiencing momentary pain. But if we're saying that the tongue of the wise brings healing, then we can see that our words are matters of death and life even. That there are words that we can say and actions that we can take that can absolutely alter fundamentally the life experience of other human beings. So what do we do with this? What do we do with Proverbs that are short, concise statements of wisdom that were meant to be memorized and learned so that behavior could be modified? Should we say, really simply, don't be a jerk in Jesus' name, go ahead and be on your merry way? Uh, we could conclude that sermon, and I would probably feel much better because then I'd be done, and, and I'd say, we'll look forward to seeing you next week, and I wish that were the case. Uh, maybe you heard this growing up as well. If you can't say nothing nice, don't say nothing at all. That's another proverb, and it's not from Scripture. It comes from Bambi. Do you remember that movie? When the little rabbit thumper says that Bambi looks a little wobbly, and his mom tries to remind him, remember the thing your dad told you. Why don't you say that to yourself? You can't say nothing nice. Don't say nothing at all. And again, we could say that the thing we ought to do in this world when conversations are filled with unhelpful words and labels and stereotypes and generalizations when we're quick to say things that really are harmful, or even worse, when we do those things with our fingers because we're not having to deal with the repercussions of saying that to someone face to face, and I don't know what it's like for you, but I try to just avoid comment boards in general for the rare times that I am on the internet because you see so quickly how they devolve into just name-calling and just nastiness. I don't think the answer for the world 
or for us is to just stop being a jerk. Because if it were that easy, we wouldn't be where we are. If it were that simple to just stop, then all of our relationships would be life-giving. They'd be filled with encouragement. They'd be filled with the opportunity when met with conflict to work towards something better. But instead, you and I, every single human on this planet, not for whatever reason, but for real reasons, continue to speak in a manner and label in a manner and cast stones in a manner and thrust swords in a manner because of something deep within us. And so this morning, instead of telling you just to stop, I think we have to ask this question, why are we prone to label or cast stones or speak dismissively, passive aggressively, or escalate verbally? And again, in our modern context, we could say that might just not be happening audibly, but we might be doing that with our fingers through a keyboard or on our phones. Why are we prone to do that? Why are we inclined? Why does it come out so easily? Why do we have to fight against those things? Why do we feel them swelling up within us? Why is there a temptation to go ahead and release those things? Why don't we think twice about how when we're driving, it comes so quickly to to say something about the person who didn't even hit us. They just cut us off like we cut off other people before. Why is it so quick for us when we're talking to a friend or to a spouse or whomever to to throw out something that that just jabs a little bit more than, than it needs to? So here is something I think we all have to really consider when it comes to our conversations, our arguments, in relationships, we ought to look at our whole selves, not just the words. You see, biblically, throughout Scripture, we see this metaphor that is filled with life because, again, there's life and death at stake. And so whether it's the, the passage of Scripture that we look at today or, or Psalm chapter 1 or other Proverbs, there's this imagery of a tree and its fruit. Because trees are living things, and they produce, and it takes time for them to mature to a place where they give something, where something from within them becomes something not for them, but actually for the people around them. That's, that's what trees are. You remember that old book that we loved growing up, The Giving Tree, right? The Giving Tree did not produce apples, and it did not continue to give itself up for this little boy for nothing else than to give itself up. And it's a pretty sad story, but the reality of that is a tree doesn't say, here's fruit so I can say I'm a fruit tree. A tree produces something because that's what trees do. And so as human beings, our words and our actions and our lives, what we create around us for other people, even though we might think it's just for ourselves, at the core of it as human beings, the way that God has wired and designed us is to produce things that aren't really for ourselves. They're for the people around us. And so then we have to ask ourselves this question, why do we produce bad fruit? Why do we produce Fruit that is rotten as is, or you know what it's like to to go to a fruit tree and to pick 
of fruit and then to see that it's already contaminated with ants or with spots that are bruised or that are already just too ripe. I don't know what that has been for you, but we know what it's like to reach into a fruit bowl and, or pull out the strawberries from the fridge. We know what it's like to get to fruit that we don't want to eat. Fruit's supposed to be nourishing and sweet. And yet all of us produce bad fruit in behavior and in word, which really means something's happened in our mind, in our heart, in our whole selves. So here's the first truth. We produce bad fruit because of something we all have to grapple with. It's our sinfulness. We have to. I mean, the imagery of fruit in Scripture at the very beginning in the garden, it begins with fruit, does it not? But remember, it's not about the actual fruit itself. It's about this eroding of trust between the first man and woman to what God had said was for their good. And when the serpent tempts them and deceives them to believe that God was holding out on them, and when the woman partakes and when she shares it to her husband who is right there, something has happened. And when we say that sin has entered into the world, we wouldn't look at that and say that's just pure and utter rebellion. No, there was an eroding of real trust and relationship there. And after that, the world that we have, this fallen, broken world, is filled with terrible fruit. And so our sinfulness, our separation from God, which unchecked certainly does produce real evil, real harm, is something we all have to grapple with. Because to say that our arguments or our relationships or our conflicts or those comment boards don't really have to do with us. It's to project blame in a place that, of course, there is, right? Of course, the person across from me has sinned too, but it doesn't help for me to just say it's your sin. Even though it's easier to do that, you and I have to be able to do the harder thing and admit first right here. The easy parallel biblically comes from Luke chapter 6, which is a Lucan version of the Sermon on the Mount here, the Sermon on the Plain. And when we think about that, it doesn't necessarily have to be at the same time. Uh, We all have our things that we go back to, those foundational things. And we're almost certain that Jesus over and over taught the things that would be found in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, which is why the rest of our New Testament reflects so deeply with these intensely practical heart and mind truths. Jesus in Luke 6, 43 says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of the heart produces good, and the evil person out of evil treasure produces evil. For it is out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. I'm just realizing this right now. Megs, would you go back to the slide before? It's funny. Sometimes we can just put things in here. Uh, This image of the figs 
not being gathered from thorns and grapes, picked from a bramble bush. This is a perfect example of, of how New Testament writers reflected deeply on what Jesus says because when James, the brother of Jesus, writes in James chapter three, and we're not gonna go into that today, I didn't plan for it, but when in that chapter James speaks about the tongue being a restless evil and that thing that no one can control, at the end of it he says that figs and grapes can't be gathered from those types of trees, right? It's like they, they have to be found from the appropriate place. And so here we see just again another example of something is going to come out of us. And if it doesn't match, we're really saying, no, it actually does match. It reflects what is there. I'd like to look at Matthew chapter 12, however, a little bit more than Luke chapter 6, because this is a parallel, and yet the context of it is, is so different. See these words, they, they sound so similar. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person brings good things out of a good treasure, and the evil person brings evil things out of an evil treasure. And I tell you, on the day of judgment, you will have to give an account for every careless word you utter. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned." A lot of times we look at Matthew chapter 12, and if we take that isolated section of Scripture similarly to Luke chapter 6, we think that the praxis there, the, the encouragement or the challenge is entirely the same, but it's actually nuanced. Because in Luke chapter 6, when Jesus is speaking these lessons, he, he is talking very straightforward about how whatever's inside of our heart, whatever is there, whatever that looks like, it is going to come out in our words. And so we could, we could say, well, what kind of tree are we, are we? Is it a good tree or a bad tree? I know that feels pretty harsh because we go, well, none of us would be good then. And that's kind of the point. <laughs> Remember, point number one, it's, it's our sinfulness. But here in Matthew chapter 12, and Megs, if you could put that back up at the very beginning of it, Jesus is actually responding to people who have said words to him. He's responding to Pharisees who have cast stones and hit sticks towards him, who have thrust swords in his direction, who have brought up words which he could certainly respond to in one way or another, but he, he's reflecting on their issues about how they are essentially claiming him to be a bad tree that produces evil fruit. You see, in Matthew chapter 12, we have a handful of stories. There are three that come before this place. The first one, plucking ground the Sabbath. The second one, there's this story about a man that comes with a withered hand, and then it moves through, and, and then there's the story of Jesus being brought a demoniac. 
And in all three of these instances, the Pharisees are there and, and they're challenging Jesus against the religious and social traditional norms. I mean, all the things that would have been absolutely, absolutely affirmed in their scriptures. And so the very first time when, when, when they're asking Jesus why the disciples are plucking grains on the Sabbath, they're trying to hold him to the letter of the law. And yet Jesus is looking at them going, I mean, we're going to have to eat. And there's precedent for, for doing otherwise. And he concludes it by saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And so again, he's going after their hearts. And then secondly, when they bring him a man with a withered hand, and they're saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to heal him? Because again, on the Sabbath, you're not supposed to be working. You're not supposed to be working for food. You're not supposed to be working at all. And so Jesus says, well, how much more valuable is a human being? And so, again, going after the heart. And then that third pericope, when they bring him a demoniac, it's like, what do you expect Jesus to do? And the Pharisees are, I don't know what they expect. I mean, they've seen him in two instances already going so countercultural, so religiously contrasted. What is he going to do with this demoniac who is blind and mute? Well, of course he's going to heal. And it's in this section that we have this incredibly fascinating dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus where they're saying essentially that the only way that it was possible for Jesus to do this huge thing, to cast out demons, is if he himself were a source of evil, if he himself were aligned with the prince of darkness, if he himself came. Essentially, they're looking at Jesus going, it's like a magic trick of sorts. The only way that you'd be able to do that is if you were the one that set it up. And so when they say that Beelzebul, the ruler of demons, is the power by which Jesus casts out demons, can you understand why Jesus would be furious if Jesus understands that his true source, his whole being comes from God the Father, all that is right and true and holy, for these Pharisees, for these religious leaders to look at him and say, there's no way you could have done that unless you yourself were a bad tree, unless you yourself were an evil tree. And we don't have the time to go into the theological ramifications of what this chapter is, but I'd encourage you sometime to look into how people in the past have taught through what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. There are so many ways that pastors and, and scholars have looked at this text to, to explain off what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit, but I'm, I'm pretty sure contextually it's, it's, it's very clear. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to attribute the goodness of God to the evil of the enemy. Because it's saying that what we do as human beings, where we produce things and we want to separate it from who we are, that's not possible with God. Only good can come from God. And so to say that God would set up this demon and this person so that he could take it out, Jesus is incredibly disgusted with this idea that God would be divided against himself in that way. So when he's saying either make the tree good and its fruit good, he's saying 
decide who I am. Put your stake in the ground. You've seen so much. You've heard so much. What else do you have to say? Who am I then to you? Or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Jesus is saying, look at what I've produced for those around me, and not just produced on my own power, but by the strength of the Father and the Spirit that resides within me. So when he says, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? It's a, it's a joke. It's, it's a riddle of sorts, right? It's, it's like we know that the Pharisees, they were able to speak of Scripture and talk of Scripture. There was so much acclaim that they had, and yet it's not about just what comes out or what people see. God looks at where it's really coming from. We can cycle through again out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so moving forward, the careless words that will be judged. That, that last bit, Megs, if you could push one more, thank you. They're not just words about other people. They're not just words that we say when we stub our toe or when we're frustrated. You see, at the core of this, if it's about our sinfulness, then really it's about whether or not our whole selves can recognize that we need Jesus Christ and his healing, and his ability. It's not of us. I'm not going to do it on my own. You're not going to do it on your own. Let's look, though, at how this really does affect or is affected by our humanness. You see, the reason why we produce bad fruit for other people is because of our insecurities and our intake. Now again, when we looked at the garden story, we saw the first man and the first woman and, and how sin was introduced in the world. If we look at Scripture as this one big narrative, right, beginning an intimate relationship with God and it being a way that's so different than what we have here, excuse me, and then Jesus Christ coming to, to reconcile and redeem and, and him providing the answer so that at the culmination of all things, we return to this state where God dwells with us and us with him. In this interim space, our insecurities and our intake, they, they're at cause for, for, for this fruit that we produce. Now, I know that you're wondering, well, how do you get that from this section of Scripture when the Pharisees, these grown men, are just talking at Jesus. But remember, with, with Nicodemus, when Jesus is with him in the middle of the night, he's talking about being born again. The idea of rebirth is so important because something happens at birth. When you're born, you're brought into this world, and it wasn't up to you, right? So let's just talk about human development really quickly. Do any of you remember when you were a baby? Like, like fresh out of the womb. I hope not. Because that would be terrible. It'd be so terrible to remember a state of being where everything was perfect. You're cozy and all, all those things. I don't need to go into the, the graphics of that because that's kind of weird, right? And then you're brought into this world and you're screaming because it's, it's terrible. It's, it's, it's cold. You're removed. You're extracted from where you were. I mean, all that you knew 
without really even knowing. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know exactly how that part works, right? I have three kids, and it's just a miracle every single time. It's wild to think that we all start the same way, and then we're brought into this world in such different places and environments. But developmentally, it's all the same. We don't remember what it's like to be bombarded with stimuli, to be bombarded with new sensory experiences over and over and over again. So when kids are like exhausted out of their brains and they sleep all day and like everyone's happy, there's a reason for that. It's because they're taking so much in. And then the older that, we're, that we get, our senses begin to, as our brain is functioning, put audible sounds and then words to generalize things, and that's important so that for the rest of our lives we're not constantly trying to interpret what's in front of us. Can you imagine if everything were brand new all the time like a baby? I mean, we would constantly just be screaming like they do, and then we'd have moments where we're feeling good again. But the point is we need to be able to label and categorize. We need to be able to put words to things, and all of those ideas and those words are external things. A baby doesn't make up the color blue, or a baby doesn't make up the word dada or mama. I mean, these are things, these are words that they're given, and then associatively, they, be, they, they, they start to attach these things to concrete beings or items. And so, the reason why as humans, concrete ideas and thoughts are, are so helpful to us is because that's how it begins. They're external things, but as we grow and develop, we get to this place where even though we're constantly taking things in, our hearts and our minds, they develop enough to a place where we have to start recognizing that things come out of us, right? Not everything is just an external experience that's brought in. There are things that are internally there. Now, What's hard to separate is that the stuff that it's internal, just remember how it works, it always began outside of us. Does that make sense? The, 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 the stuff that later on in life is deep within us, we might not remember how it got there, but I know for sure I did not come up with the color blue. That's a trivial matter. Let's consider all of the ways that I look at the world and I interpret the world and I see the world and I filter the world, even though at this point in my life, it's just there. It started somewhere else. What we cannot say as we become full-blown adults, however, is that our job is to just say, well, I don't remember where I got that idea. I'm not sure when my heart is bent or formed this way. No, there's an ownership that happens. There's a maturing. Look at Matthew 12, verse 14. During the, this section, the Pharisees, they go out and they conspire against Jesus, how to destroy him. Remember, these are just people. And when little children are interacting with Jesus and they're, they're sitting on his lap and they're playing with him and, and they're having a grand old time hearing his stories and, and all that fun stuff, they're engaging with him in a way that little children do. These Pharisees who are plotting to destroy him, to kill him, to take his life after he has done miraculous, incredible things, 
There's no one else who's responsible for that. But what is inside of their being in their heart? And we say their insecurity and their intake has has formulated so much of that. Their religious tradition and their social tradition, their political tradition, all of those things, the people that they surround themselves, the way that they constantly talk and dialogue amongst them, they've cultivated this environment internally where that is going to come out. But again, we contrast that with Nicodemus, for instance, and we see there is an opportunity, an opportunity for us to come to the one who can actually remedy everything that's wrong with us. Let's start to get a little bit more practical. Here's the question. How can we cultivate healthier soil and produce good fruit for people around us? And we want that, don't we? Wouldn't the people around us be so much happier if you and I just didn't give them words that felt like sword thrusts or didn't type out things that were hurtful or didn't gossip because they couldn't hear us and it felt good to do those things. So, so how do we remedy this? I'm not going to tell you again to, to just try harder. It starts with Jesus the Christ. We have to continually abide in him. We don't use that word abide a lot, right? To stay or remain I want to read a longer section of Scripture, and I hope these words that are outside of you, and hopefully for some of us they are in there, but take them in in a fresh way. Uh, have it just so into your, your soul, not just soil, but your soul, your entire being. These words of Jesus to his disciples before he's about to demonstrate the greatest of sacrifices. Verse 1, I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes to make it bear more fruit. You've already been cleansed by the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Before we get to this next section, Again, there's a lot of stuff that we don't see in the English, but the very first time in, in verse 4 when the word abide is used, thank you, Megs, for going back to that. The tense in the Greek there is aorist. It's a snapshot in time. It's something like a picture. Uh, when I was a kid, I remember seeing photographs and thinking, it's so crazy that you're holding this picture of something that's something before it and something after it, but it, it's caught, it's captured. It still blows my mind. Does that blow your mind too? Right, the picture, it gives us reality and yet there's something before and after. Now, Jesus didn't grow up in a world with pictures or iPhones and so that's clearly not the imagery that he's using, but hopefully that's helpful for you. So when we see that tense in Greek, we understand that it's a snapshot. It, it's not indicating anything before or after. And so there, Jesus says, that snapshot, abide, abide. But the rest of the time that Jesus uses the word meno here, which is what we translate to abide, it moves to a present tense, which means there's no indication of it ending. It's active in its present, and so it continues to go. And so the modern way to see that would be a video, 
right? It's not a picture. It's, we're filming it. We're seeing all of these moments that could be stopped. They, they could be captured. They could be seen. But the entirety of it is something that is just unfolding in real time. And so Jesus is saying there's, there's a snapshot. There's a, there's a moment that, that stays still. And yet it's, it's within this whole. And that's what he's calling for, to remain in him, the whole of our lives. And so consistently, when we're talking about our relationship with Christ, I, I, I try to express to our young adults, for instance, when we're together on, on Sunday nights, that the relationship with Christ isn't about just a snapshot in time as they're reading their Bibles, right? We're not just trying to get them to read their Bibles more or pray more, but that snapshot, that moment in time where you can capture it, that behavior where you're being obedient to it, where you are in taking the words of Jesus, that produces this lifetime, this video, this unfolding that's so much more. You see, it's not about just that thing. It's, it's, it's our life. So when we say our relationship with Christ, it's our whole life. It's my whole life. And yet the whole of my life can be reduced to these moments, these, these snapshots. And the other day, my son Titus and I were playing pool and he grabbed out my iPhone. And I thought this was really fascinating. I'm like, oh, I could use that in my sermon. He, he took out my iPhone and he took 1,147 burst photos. Within a matter of seconds, I can't even compute how technology can capture that many moments in such a short time frame. And doesn't that say something about what it means to abide in Jesus Christ? How powerful that to abide in him would be moment after moment. And so he's calling for us to do specific things that would be caught in time and yet be the whole. Let's keep going. I'm the vine, you are the branches. Those who abide in me and I in them bear much fruit, because apart from me you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown in the fire, and burned. And what's interesting about that is that's not in the air's tense. It's actually, it's something that's ongoing, so there's always opportunity. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified in this, by this, that you may bear much fruit and become my disciples. Now we could take this and go, well, sweet, it's like I stay in Jesus, remain in Jesus, and I just get whatever I want. But what do you long for? Where's your treasure? There your heart is it. The things that we ask for, but God's going to be glorified in his good opinion. The thing that people are going to see, the fruit, it's this discipleship, it's this learning unto him. It's being found and being made complete and whole in him. And so he continues, and he could not make this more clear. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I've said these things to you so that my joy may be made in you and that your joy may be made complete. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. I do not call you servants any longer because the servant does not know what the master is doing. But I have called you friends because I have made known you everything that I have heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you 
And I appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, that the Father will give you whatever you ask him in my name. I'm giving you these commands so that you may, what? Love one another. I could end the sermon there. There's a little bit more. But the more of it is connected to the all of it. See, again, we cited James earlier, and if you didn't go, if you haven't heard already, please go back and hear week one of this series. Britt did such a good job talking about the, the art of listening, and he spent a lot of time in the book of James, and I, I referenced it earlier. But James, so much of his writing really does reflect on the words of Jesus. And, and I remember a few years ago when we were doing a series on James, I talked about how it, it hadn't hit me until... I don't know, when I was actually studying for that series that, that the, the letter of James itself so strongly paralleled the Sermon on the Mount. You can understand that the Sermon on the Mount, it catalyzes so much of how the New Testament authors think about what Jesus says, but when you read the letter of James, you really do see over and over and over these parallels. And so James, he, he uses these imageries of words and fruit and sinfulness, that, that evil thing was in us that caused us to war with others. It's there. He talks about that in, in chapter four. But in James chapter five, he uses this imagery of farmers waiting for their fruit. I'm not sorry, not yet, Megs. Uh, I want to give them the, the little word there for their note sheet if they have it. What we're called to do here is continually weed out apathy or impatience. You see, in this process of us abiding in Christ and being a tree that produces good fruit for the world so that they would know that we are disciples of his, that, they'd be, that they would see and, and know that God himself is the source and that we would glorify God and they would know us by our love for one another. That's a difficult thing to do. We see all the ways that we go after one another. And so we ought to have this awareness that grows in us. If we are children of God that are being moved into maturity into Christ, then that imagery of fruit means that we ought to be tending over and over to what's inside of us. And, and what can grow is apathy or impatience for the process. And so I'd encourage you later on, read James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And even though you might not see how that's connected to words, if you read it within the context of the whole letter of James, you'll understand that so much of the suffering that we're called to endure is self-inflicted and inflicted against one another. Does that make sense? So, so much of our relational strife and what's happening in our homes and our workplaces or in our church communities, we could just say over and over, well, that's the evil one. And yes, the evil one is at work. The evil one is at work wanting us to not recognize that we have sin inside of us that's provoking these evil things. So again, go back and read that within the whole context of James and see how this idea of a farmer waiting patiently for their fruit and strengthening our hearts really does have to do with the whole of ourselves. Here's your last fill in the blank, however. If it begins with abiding in Christ— and that that imagery is moved to continually weeding out apathy and impatience and not thinking it's important, not feeling like, oh, we can do anything. Let's go to the most proactive thing that we could do with Jesus Christ. There, there's something that we can do that's more than just saying, hey, stop saying those mean things or you know, read your Bible for 30 minutes a day, stuff that's really important. But Let's see what James says to conclude 
his letter. Are any among you suffering? They should pray. Are any of you cheerful? They should sing songs of praise. Are any among you sick? They should call for the elders of the church and have them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise them up, and anyone who has committed sins will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous is powerful and effective. I think the greatest disservice that has been done to this passage of Scripture is that it's ignored the whole context of James, which is about the whole of ourselves. And if it's about the whole of ourselves, then it's not just about physical ailment or sickness. If we understand that death and, death and life is at stake, then we recognize that the life that is at stake isn't just our physical well-being. That there's a sickness to us that's more than just what we're fighting in this pandemic or how you felt the other week when your head hurt. Is physical sickness so important? Yes. Is there healing that can be provided to us when we pray and ask God or when we see in this moment this activity of inviting these elders, these older men in the church to come into prayer, when we are with one another, is there physical healing that's involved? Absolutely. But this heart stops beating someday. And before we're physically dead anyway, For Jesus to say he comes to bring life and life to the full is to say that there is full, abundant life right now and to abide in him, to remain in him, not just for these quick moments of time, but to realize that those snapshots, they're building into this unfolding of us being found in him over and over and over again. There are really practical, powerful things that we can do, and James outlines them here in the present tense. What's interesting is when he talks about calling for the elders, it's aorist. It's, they're like moments in time when you should make that decision to call for people to come around you. But these three verbs that I put up, pray, praise, or sing, and confess, they're all in the present tense. There's no indication of when these things stop. There's no indication of them just supposed to be just like this moment that's stuck in time. When James gives us these verbs to pray and to sing or to praise or to confess, he's giving us the opportunity. Notice all three of these actions involve speaking. Every single one, because the confession here is confessing to one another. The praising here is singing out as a prayer. These these are words that come for not just whatever we're experiencing. It's for the whole of us. It's fascinating that every single one of these, it's not just the tense, but there's this middle or passive voice here in all all of them that say, when I pray... 
when I praise, when I confess, I could think that it's just for something else to happen outside of me, but it's, it's, it's working on me too. So whoever you are, if you're watching this, if you're listening to this, I hope that you hear, and Ben, you can, you can come up, and we're, we're, we're going to conclude here in a moment. I hope that you hear that for your relationships, for those arguments and conflict, for whatever is happening in your workplace or your home or your school, those times when you're driving alone in your car or you're by yourself, in all of these moments, because it is about life, because it is about life, would you hear that to abide in Jesus Christ is to actively speak in a way that others hear? Because as others hear and we help transform one another, when we participate in our sanctification that way, do you realize that we are actually helping each other, not only abide in Christ, but we're we're taking out the stuff inside of us that's holding us back from being fruit and bearing good fruit for one another. So this week, I'm going to challenge you to look at praying and praising and confessing and to using words not just to God and not just by ourselves, but to the people around you. Because when we ask for prayer, or when we sing praise together, or we confess the stuff inside of us that has become so internalized, whether it's, it's sin that's there, or our stories that have, are still there, whatever it is, all of that, when we speak these things together, we have the opportunity to see that for that moment in life, we are beginning to experience the fullness of abiding in Him. Let's pray.